This is a test of the emergency podcast system. Activated by contract termination. Rumors of our demise are greatly exaggerated. Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. She's blessed to be a Bible-reading, gun-toting, Air Force veteran, wife and mom, righteously American. Wow. Welcome to the show. Guess what, guys? This is our very first opportunity to spend a little bit of radio time, a little bit of radio capital. Here we are, and we're on LifeZet TV. So what's great about this is that I'm actually sitting here in my same spot, but we are now in a new location online and it's LiveZet TV. You can go to LiveZet.com to find out more about LiveZet. I've actually had op-eds over there before and I've read articles from there before. I've had a ton of LiveZet authors on the show before. So this is a great opportunity for us to kind of connect up and be a part of a new network, but still kind of new in, in this way, but not new in the way that we've never been around before. Like we've already been connected. So this is cool. Um, today on the show, we are going to be talking about a ton of different things. I want to start off with, well, we're going to have to talk about the whole issue of the impeachment inquiry and how the president actually said he's going to, uh, well, basically not cooperate. No one's going to cooperate from the Trump administration. What's important about that is he's exactly right. So we'll talk about why. And then we're going to go into uh, the Jordan Meadows gets at Zeldin. All of those guys were caught in a hallway someplace by a bunch of reporters and they lit the reporters up. They went crazy because I think they were, they were probably feeling like, you know, um, this is ridiculous. Why should we have to continue on with this? So we're going to hear some audio, watch some audio from them. And then we're going to dive into, um, this ESPN story. And this has, I've, I've been waiting to see, like, are they going to come to their senses and recognize that we are a free country and therefore we would support freedom in other countries? Or are they going to bow down to their wallets? And I get it. Money is important. Earning a living is important. Not alienating your business partners, super important. You want to keep contracts and make more. But what exactly are we hearing here? What are we seeing here? Um, I think it's a bit of fascism. I think it's kind of sad. Um, and then we're also going to talk about the worst serial killer in U.S. history. I'm actually shocked by this story, not because we don't know anything about serial killers or we've never heard of them before, but because this is, I mean, if you just look at this guy's eyes, he looks dead. Um, online, we have the story over at DISRN.com. Uh, and that is actually one of the ones from the guy who runs Christian Daily Reporter. He launched this website and it's been great. I've been finding links from there like over and over again. I find myself back on this website reading his work and he does a quick article here, basically a tiny blurb. So we'll be diving into that story as well. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about why blacks have to vote for Donald Trump. Um, and our guest today, we're going to have someone from the Pacific Legal Foundation. Um, and we love the guys over there. We've, I've always had such a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to uh, interview them. And so we'll have him on uh, in the next segment to talk about the Supreme Court and what's incoming. Um, and when I say him, you're probably thinking, who are you talking about, Stacey? Who are we having on? Um, let me tell you his name. 
we are going to be speaking with. Oh, sorry, guys. Um, da, 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 da. This is what happens when we have. Uh, oh, Jim Burling. Jim Burling is going to be the guest. So he's going to be on with us from Pacific Legal Foundation. You know, we love the people over there. They're they're good friends. So he's going to join us. So let's launch into this. Um, I want to start out with the serial killer. The FBI has verified at least 50 Samuel Little murder confessions. Um, and they're saying he's the worst serial killer in U.S. history. And this is by Sam Ford over at, uh, or Adam Ford over at Deseran.com. And you can always find the links that we talk about in the show in the show notes for the podcast site, which is listen.stacyontheright.com. So he's the worst serial killer in U.S. history. He's 79 years old and he's just been confirmed um, they actually have gone through and verified the murders that he's confessed to. He said he's killed 93 people. We're now saying that 50 of the 93 confessions that he's admitted to are verified. And this, these killings happened between 1970 and 2005. He was serving three consecutive life sentences in California when he confessed to another 90 killings last year. FBI crime analysts actually believe that all of his murder confessions are credible. Now, he's able to recall each crime with a high level of detail and draw extremely accurate pictures of each of his victims, even decades later. Using these details and drawings, the FBI is asking for the public's help in identifying more of his victims. Now, he was a, kind of a nomad moving around from place to place. He targeted, targeted vulnerable women, um, sex workers, drug addicts, and he was a strangler. So that was his method of killing. Um, I, I just would love for them to really examine the way that he was able to operate like this over decades. And this also helps with a number of missing cases, like missing persons cases that have been unsolved. Now we understand, well, it's because of this one guy. And I've always wondered that, like, is, has it, is it just maybe, you know, a hundred serial killers running around the country that are responsible for all of these missing kids? Um, we know sex trafficking is a thing, a horrible crime that's going on, and people are now participating by taking pictures in hotel rooms and using apps to try to make sure that we can catch uh, the people who are trafficking children and give these kids a chance to, you know, go back home, young women, boys, girls, et cetera. So um, this is an interesting interesting development, and I'm going to be watching it for more just to try to figure out, like, how did this happen? How was he able to operate like this for so long? Um, so it's good news in a way. And it's also obviously a tragedy for those who will find out that their loved ones won't be coming home because the serial killer snuffed them out. Um, so turning now to Hillary Clinton, replying to Trump's call for her to enter the 2020 race. Don't tempt me as if she's not already kind of running. So I'm, I think we need to all go ahead and accept that Hillary Clinton will probably be running for the presidency until she's toes up. We will not see her stop running until she's literally no longer able to stand up. And we know we saw her get thrown into the back of the van during her last campaign, but she's still up running around, um, getting photographed on the red carpet and generally acting as if not only she's still a public figure, which obviously she is, but that she's running for the presidency. So what happened? Well, President Trump was on the Twitter, uh, his fully operational Twitter battle station and he said, I think that crooked Hillary Clinton should enter the race to try and steal it away from uber left Elizabeth Warren. Only one condition. The crooked one must explain all of her high crimes and misdemeanors, including how and why she deleted 33,000 emails after getting C, and that's in quotes, subpoena. 
So she shot back, don't tempt me, do your job. <laughs> I think he's doing a great job, don't you? Don't you think the unemployment numbers are fantastic? The, um, the economy is booming. We even have movement, or I should say, paralyzation of the Chinese government. They just, they don't know what to do with President Trump. They're so used to dealing with people who are afraid of them, Republicans and Democrats. And to have someone who's just literally saying, you know, come at me, bro. My economy rocks and my products rock. My country rocks. You, you have to come to me and deal with me as opposed to, you know, carrying their hat in their hand and kind of inching over there and sidling up and trying to be girlfriend to the Chinese communists. I love it. I think it's absolutely the right thing for us to have a president who's willing to stand up instead of just, you know, uh, sitting around, just sitting around doing nothing. Um, so that brings us to the Jordan Meadows uh, subpoena issue. And I've been, I've just been waiting to see if anybody who was a Republican would come out and really respond to what's been happening here to the president. Is any Republican going to be, um, I, like, is anyone going to just stand up, not so much for the president, but for the rule of law and the processes that we have, accepted processes that have stood the test of time that govern how Congress brings forward an impeachment inquiry, which includes after you announce your inquiring, you have a vote so that it's official so everyone can begin to gather evidence and information. They haven't done that. Um, so I, I want to talk about that a little bit more, but first let's listen to it's Jordan, Jim Jordan, and he's on a tear here. It's cut to. He had met with the whistleblower prior to the whistleblower filing the complaint. Adam Schiff didn't tell us that the way he treated Ambassador Sondland last week in this, excuse me, Ambassador uh, Volker in this uh, interview last week, that's, that treatment is, is the reason why the administration, the State Department said we're not going to subject Ambassador Sondland to the same treatment. And um, look, we were actually looking forward to hearing from Ambassador Sondland. We thought he was going to reinforce exactly what Ambassador Volker told us last week. But again, unfortunately, when you have a Speaker of the House who says we need to strike while the iron's hot, when you have a chairman of the committee who is so biased against this president that he wouldn't even tell us that he had met with his staff, had met with the whistleblower prior to the whistleblower filing the complaint. And frankly, this is a pattern with Mr. Schiff. He did the same thing. If you remember, the first big hearing the Democrats did this Congress, Michael Cohen, he didn't tell us that his staff had met with Mr. Cohen four hours prior to Mr. Cohen testifying. He didn't tell us that last summer he had met with Mr. Simpson out in Colorado, palling around with the guy with Fusion GPS. So this is a pattern. Um, like I said, we were hoping to hear from the ambassador today, but we understand exactly why the administration, exactly why the State Department has chosen to say, look, if it's going to be this kind of process, if you're going to selectively leak text messages, 67 pages of text messages we had, they, they take a handful and release to all of you and not give the full context and not release the transcript, we understand why they made this this decision at this. Uh yeah, so that that is those are great points that are being made there. And I think, uh, you know, for most Americans, especially if you're drive by, um, you know, kind of low information where you just show up, get a little bit of news. If you're just getting the highlights, you think that there's something to this. You think that there is something in that phone call, something in the transcript, something in the interaction between the president of the United States and the Ukrainian government that warrants 
an impeachment inquiry. And you also think that the announcement is an indication that everything else that needs to be done to kind of set the table has already been done. So you're literally sitting there thinking, hey, you know, now when are they going to get on to inquiring? You haven't even realized what he says there, that that's the truth, that it's a bunch of leaking and narrative shaping that's going on as opposed to a true inquiry into what the president has done. So again, I've always said from day one, you can find all of the audio of me saying if the president has done something wrong, he should be held accountable. If the president is uh, guilty of doing something and they look into it and they find it, you know, have at it with the consequences. I've always said that because I said the same thing about President Obama, who coincidentally was never held accountable. Now we need to get into some of the details. First of all, testimony from an impeachment inquiry's participation is being selectively used to create this false narrative. Okay. So it, this, this isn't about whether or not he's done anything wrong. It's about getting the American people to think he's guilty so that his poll numbers can be lowered so that consequently fewer people will vote for him because, uh, Cleaver, one of, one of the Democrats, a black Democrat from Kansas city, I believe he said, well, the reason why we need to impeach him is to make sure he's not reelected. If you have ever heard the truth, that was it. If you know the truth when it comes at you, then you recognize that as being the clear explanation for why we need an impeachment inquiry. That's it. Go no further. If you're looking and wondering why we're even going through this rigmarole, there it is. They want to stop the president from being elected. Now, uh, com committees are not going to release full transcripts or documents from the impeachment inquiry, not if they exonerate the president. The administration is not going to assist Pelosi and Schiff in their scheme of making something out of nothing. And the requests for interviews are not legal subpoenas because the House has not created the judicial authority required within the committees by holding a full House vote to authorize. So this is how it works. They make some kind of announcement. Hey, we want to inquire as to why the president did X. We believe it was illegal, you know, whatever. Then they hold a full vote, and they being Congress, the House of Representatives has to hold a vote, allowing every member to weigh in. Once the vote has been cast, and there are a majority of the members of the House who support an impeachment inquiry, that forms the basis through which subpoenas can be issued. And there's no limitation. People who are Republicans, people who are Democrats, even the socialists. Well, he's not in he's not in the House. If, if the socialist Bernie Sanders was in the House of Representatives, he could also issue subpoenas. It doesn't matter what party you're in. If you're a member of the House, you can issue them. Then those people who have been subpoenaed are under that authority of the subpoena to have to come in and show up and actually answer questions. And that testimony goes into the record and it can be it can be released. Those those transcripts can be released to the American people or used to support or um, eliminate the the guilt of the person that's being inquired upon, which is the president of the United States. So, this lack of a vote is the indication that they don't really believe that the president is guilty of anything. This is an impeachment to prevent a reelection. Call it plan C, if you will. Uh, you can really call it anything you want. Um, so right now we're going to go to the break. And when we get back, we are going to be chatting with um, our guest from the Pacific Legal Foundation about the Supreme Court and what's going on there. 
Um, so, you know, stick with us. We'll be right back with more. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Um, so now I want to dig into, we have a, a huge problem and I've talked about it before and I want to make sure we cover it completely here. And that is that Democrats take black votes for granted. Democrats actually think that black people will vote for um, whoever talks about, you know, uh, LGBTQ issues, whoever talks about illegal immigration, whoever talks about anything that has nothing to do with the black community in America, because as every other community is, the black community is multifaceted, full of fantastic, varied, diverse people. And in other words, just like the rest of Americans, black people have many concerns and most of them center around issues that affect every other kind of American, whether it's socioeconomic or uh, the, the kitchen table type stuff. Where are my kids going to school? Um, how am I making all of my my payments? My, you know, how am I getting out of debt? How am I maybe climbing up the ladder of the American dream by selling the house I have and moving up or buying a house or buying a condo or even moving out of a neighborhood that's not so great into one that's safe? So I can begin the steps to do that. If for older Americans, how can I save and invest to make sure that when I hit 65 or 68, or even if I work until I'm 70, that I have enough disposable income coming in, a steady stream, to make up what Social Security possibly, probably won't be contributing to my economic welfare. These are the kinds of things that Democrats and Republicans should speak to Black Americans about. But they don't. They treat black Americans as if we are the sum total of our skin, like this tiny little it's it's a tiny part of who I am. I know. And most black people you don't run around thinking, well, I'm black today. What am I going to do? No, you don't. You know why you don't do that? Because it doesn't make any sense. No one does that. So I want to hear from this Democratic strategist. He is making no sense whatsoever. He says his name's Mark McKinnon. He says Elizabeth Warren can get black voters. All she has to do is win. Cut one. I know from personal experience how fast it <coughs> We were up 18 points in South Carolina before New Hampshire. We lost New Hampshire, and the next day we were behind 18 points. Yeah, but you won South Carolina. But the, the African-American vote is crucial for Elizabeth no Warren. She's run a stateless campaign yeah. other than this. That's true. She's introducing new policies directly aimed at the African-American vote. What can she do and can she turn that around to her favor? Yep, she can. You know what it is? Win. Win Iowa, win New Hampshire, they'll come aboard. All right. So win Iowa, win New Hampshire, and black people will come aboard. Now, I've heard that she has some policies that are specifically geared towards the black community and that she's been rolling that out. And good for her. I'm happy. I'm happy to hear it. But you know what there is uh, that's going on a little bit in that clip? It's the same thing we've seen for decades from the black, uh, the purveyors of this narrative that black people are just their demographics. Just we, we are the sum total of the fact that we're black, which is just a that's not a thing. That's not a thing that a Hispanic person is the sum total of them being Hispanic or an Asian person is the sum total of them being Asian. They only treat blacks this way. And so his idea that if she's a winner, blacks will come on board. Well, that did kind of happen with Barack Obama. It happened with Hillary Clinton, but it's not an accurate portrayal of what really excites black voters. 
So what I'm saying is that we have to push back against that. We have to say we demand policies that will show Americans that we want results, that will show politicians that they owe us something for the vote. It's not an issue of whether or not you can win. Of course you can win if all the black people vote for you. The issue is why would they vote for you? The question that they're asking is not the right one. You don't ask, how do I get black voters to vote for me outside of what can I provide them in the way of policy and legislative proposals that would better their lives? Which notice I didn't say you have to pass more laws. Sometimes it's less laws that are needed. You have to pass more legislation. Sometimes it's that you need to repeal some legislation, but you need to highlight the victimhood of a certain group. Blacks are not inherently victims. Black people are just as capable of doing anything that any other person is capable of doing if your mind is set and you're prepared and you want to do it. It might be difficult. It might There might be obstacles in your path. But does that mean you can't do it because you're black? And so I just, I wonder, what would happen if every time a white politician who happens to be a Democrat started pandering to black people, if every time that happened, blacks said, you know what? Uh, thank you for noticing that I'm black, but what do your policies actually do for people who are in this income bracket or people who live in this part of the country or people who are facing, let's say, mounting uh, health care bills? How do your proposals fix that? And don't say we'll spread it around amongst all the taxpayers. I mean, how do you actually plan to make a change to the way things are now that would e make it easier for me to pay my medical bills? And I know, so low information voters, we always talk about low info voters. Yeah, but some of the most politically engaged Americans in this country come out of the black community. It's a, it's a misnomer that blacks can't understand policy or aren't interested in policy. That's actually just something that people say when they don't have any policies that they want to put forward. To say that black people are uninterested in what details a person can provide simply shows how deeply embedded the mantra of demographics only, skin worshiping only, being a slave to the ideas of the Democratic Party as opposed to just saying, you know what, we, we need some different we need some different proposals. And notice they haven't provided that. So the clown car of Democrats that we're currently looking at for uh, for president was actually mocked on SNL the other night. And I thought this was actually not that well done. Can we just be real here for a second? Um, if you've watched SNL for years, we'll just say years, and you've spent any amount of time looking at them and saying, hmm, uh, you know, this is funny, that's not funny. If you can tell, then you know that it wasn't their best work. They went out of their way to mock the Democratic candidates in a way, in, in, in a gentle fashion. It was, a, you know, an easy kind of almost a massage mockery, as opposed to them saying, we're going to go after them as hard as we go by um, Democrats or Republicans. We're going to try to get them just as hard as we try to get the Republicans. It would have been much funnier if they had done so. Um, so it, the interesting thing, they did it. The second interesting thing, they didn't try hard enough. They could have mocked the Democrats much harder than they did. Um, if you see the the clip of it, you're you're not going to be as impressed. I think I maybe almost laughed once. Um, they did a good job of of really making it appear that Kamala Harris doesn't know she's running for the presidency. 
that she may be running for something else and we just don't know what it is. But uh, again, not, not to, not to say that they have to mock a certain way, but that the way in which they took on the Democrats was so soft handed that they missed the mark. And so I hope they keep trying. I hope they try to find their comedic chops and get back to where they were, where they would make fun of anyone, regardless of your ethnic background, your socioeconomic status, whether you were in Hollywood, whether you're a politician, no matter what party you were in, they would make fun. And it was actually funny. I'm hoping they'll get back to that. So right now we're going to go to the break. And when we get back, uh, we'll have more for you. Stay right here at Stacy on the Right on Life Set TV. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the program. I'm so glad to have our next guest with us. It's Jim Burling. He's an attorney and a graduate of the University of Arizona College of Law in Tucson. He also served there as an editor of the Law Review, receiving a JD in 1983. And he is actually a member of the Pacific Legal Foundation, working there since 1983, litigating cases from Alaska to Florida. So he's an expert. And he's joining us today to talk to us about the Supreme Court's next session. We, it just opened. And I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks, Jim, for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. So let's talk about this. I've seen a lot of cases going back and forth, and the ones that interest me the most tend to be with surrounding social issues and how the Supreme Court is going to take these cases having to do with abortion, LGBT rights, and kind of either give us our freedom, or I shouldn't say give, but maintain our freedom, or maybe obliterate it. <laughs> That's a pretty stark contrast, but we have been going down a road for a long time and the uh, Supreme Court may be going on to a different road, a, a road that is more consistent with the original meaning of the Constitution. That naturally gets some people, the uh, social justice warriors, a little concerned uh, because the Constitution, as they would like to have it, might not be the way it's written, but they've been getting their way for a while and they may not be getting their way quite as much now. So the thing that you're speaking about when you say them not getting their way is the beautiful transformation that is in process. It's not complete until RGB is mm -hmm. replaced. But um, you're speaking of Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh, who are both, they're kind of wild cards in my opinion, but they're definitely more conservative than anyone that would have been appointed by a Hillary Clinton, let's say. So they have one case that you're writing about here at the Hill, um, County of Maui versus Hawaii Wildlife Fund. Um, right. what, what's that one about? So when the Clean Water Act was adopted back in 1972, Congress was really careful to make sure that the states had plenty of power to do regulation for those things that were local to state jurisdictions that did not inter really involve interstate commerce in a significant way. And one of those primary things that Congress said that the states should regulate was groundwater. That was an issue for the states because groundwater is by definition, in the ground of a state. Now, there's a problem that happens sometimes when something is in groundwater, that groundwater eventually could reach a navigable waterway, a river or perhaps the ocean. And so 
that's been the hook that some people at EPA and some environmental groups are claiming gives the federal government the ability to regulate groundwater, even though Congress was clear that the federal government didn't have the authority under the Clean Water Act to do that. So County of Maui is treating a number of, uh, have a sewage treatment plant, and it takes the treated wastewater and injects that into the ground, into, i.e., the groundwater, which eventually, after a considerable period of time, reaches the Pacific Ocean. So people at EPA and some environmental groups have gotten quite aggressive, saying, look, anytime anything that perhaps may circulate into groundwater gives us the ability to regulate groundwater uh, because it eventually reaches a navigable waterway. And so we think the so-called conduit theory is, is pretty aggressive and pretty wild. And this is an issue that is before the Supreme Court in an argument next month. Uh, so we're, we're looking at it to see really if, if the court really wants to follow the scheme of the Clean Water Act to allow states to have jurisdiction of those things that are really close to the heart of what states do. All right, fantastic analysis on that, because uh, we need a lawyer to kind of understand what exactly <laughs> what you just explained. So, right. Jim, I want to I want to go to one of the ones that I thought was pretty interesting, Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue, um, right. which has to do with the Blaine Amendments. We have one here in the state of Missouri where I live, and I've written mm -hmm. about it a little bit because we had a case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court that was about a small Christian school that applied mm -hmm. to the state of Missouri for access to basically cut up, ground up tires to use for Correct. mulch for their playground. And that mm -hmm. case made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And it had to do with the Blaine Amendments as well. What is Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue? What It, it, it kind of intersects there. Yeah, it, it's very similar. Uh, the Espinoza case out of Montana deals with the issue of school choice because uh, the voters of Montana decided that the current system of financing schools was not enough to give students alternatives. Uh, there's a good push in a lot of areas to give parents and students alternatives to the same public education that's available for everybody, uh, specifically private schools and some parochial schools. And realizing they couldn't directly fund these schools, the voters of Montana passed a tax credit system where contributions to students' parents that would be used to pay for uh, private schools was, was a system they set up. And they did that to avoid direct contributions to religious schools, but it gave parents the choice. Here's tuition money. Now I can use this to send my child to a private school or a parochial school. Well, the Commissioner of Revenue didn't like that. The teachers' union didn't like that because they don't like competition. And they argued that this violates the Montana Constitution's Blaine Amendment. The Blaine Amendment, you know, for those people who aren't familiar with it, there is a Senator Blaine back in the 1800s who uh, was very concerned about parochial schools because they were formed by Catholics. The public schools in that era were largely Protestant-based. They had Protestant-based curriculum. That was in the time when you could have school prayers and Bible readings and Bible lessons in your public school. And so the Catholics did not like that. And so they started forming their own private Catholic schools. And Senator Blaine didn't like Catholics. And he didn't like the idea of any student going to a Catholic school with a dime of public money. 
So he started, he tried to get Congress to pass a amendment to the United States Constitution, it would have started in Congress and would have gone to the states, but Congress said, no, we're not going down that road. But his uh, idea did take hold in a number of states. A number of states, such as Montana, passed constitutional amendments, essentially saying that no money of any kind should go to a parochial school. So now in Montana, what is it when you have this tax credit system where money is not directly going to a school, it's going to the parents who make that choice. But Montana said that this violates the state's Blaine Amendment and the, and the Supreme Court is taking this case up because it's a very important case for furthering school choice. Look, parochial schools and other private schools are institutions that have for a long time provided students with an alternative education. Uh, when parents are not satisfied for a variety of reasons, the type of education they're getting in public schools, this gives them a choice. Uh, but with the Blaine Amendment, Montana Supreme Court said, no, you cannot have this tax credit system. Uh, therefore, uh, no luck for Montana students and their parents. So the Supreme Court is going to decide this in an argument whether or not the Blaine Amendment itself, the, the state's Blaine Amendment, violates the federal constitution's guarantee of equal protection and guarantee that there shall not be religious discrimination by governments. And this is, in essence, like your school in uh, your state of Missouri that wanted to get the uh, ground up tires to the playground and they were treated differently. The question is here, are Catholic schools being treated differently in the same manner? And if so, is that unconstitutional? Wow. So uh, first of all, it's pretty amazing that all of these cases, I, I wouldn't say all of them, but a ton of cases have actually gone forward to the Supreme Court. And the reason behind it is usually that some form of freedom is at stake. So whether it's one group who happened to have a preschool that's sponsored by a church getting mulched up tires or, um, you know, use, using your money for anything having to do with education, it tends to be that people want to restrict the freedom of other people to make their own choices. And, and one of the most central choices a person can make is where would my child go to school? And that involves their taxpayer dollars and often their private money as well, because the taxpayer money wouldn't cover the the full cost of tuition. And in cases like ours, we pay twice. Our taxes go to the public school system, which we absolutely hate. It's actually publicly affiliated with Planned Parenthood. And our private money that we earn above our taxes that we pay, we we spend that to send our, our daughter to this, uh, it's a Christian mm -hmm. school that's really close to us. Um, and, and the tuition is higher than the per pupil expenditure in the district that we support. But we do that because we want her not to be in a school that's affiliated with Planned Parenthood, for example. So it's, it's interesting that yeah. this has to go to the Supreme Court. Yeah, no, parents want the best for their children. That's been the case for as long as parents have had children. And they, I, I can completely understand why many parents are very dissatisfied with the public school system. Not only is the education oftentimes problematic, but the inculcation of a certain moral belief system that is not consistent with people's religious values is very troubling. And if you're not given a choice, uh, you're essentially allowing your child to be indoctrinated in a system which you, you may deeply disbelieve. And as try as you might to provide the right moral values to your child at home, uh, the influence of school can be tremendous 
And that's why having a school that is consistent with your personal and moral values is so important and why the use, use of this Blaine Amendment to stop that from happening in Montana is, is really unfortunate. I'm so glad we have had an opportunity to chat with you about these issues. The explanations are top notch and I really feel like I have a better understanding. And the article that you have here at the Hill is in the um, show notes for the show. So when the show goes live, the people will be able to read that article and see about the other stories. There are actually other, um, other cases, I should say that are moving forward and the Supreme court will be handling those as well. Um, I wanted to say thank you so much Jim Burling, Vice President of Legal Affairs for the Pacific Legal Foundation. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. Um, so I want to make sure that everyone knows that today was our inaugural program here on LifeSet TV. Um, so if you saw glitches or anything, guess what? It only gets better from here. We are going to be having so much fun interviewing guests on Skype so you can see them and Skyping in from this is a newly revamped back wall here. So love it or leave it. You can send your comments to me at Stacy on the right at gmail.com. And I will respond to you. I reply to all my own emails. Um, so thank you so much for being with us today. I am Stacy Washington. You can find me all over online social media at Stacy on the right on Twitter and Instagram and Stacy on the right.com is my website. Thanks for being with us today. We'll see you tomorrow.